Hello everyone, Trish Guys here, divorce and pre-mediation coach. Welcome to Shit I Learned from My Divorce, a show where I share with you the good, the bad, and the ugly of what I learned from my divorce. 12 years of trying to live my life while my former partner was trying to destroy it. Trish Guys is not a legal professional, nor a licensed mental health professional. The information she provides is not intended to be legal advice and is intended only for informational and entertainment purposes. Some of the topics on the show may be triggering for some, so please use caution and your own discretion. Topics discussed on the show may not be suitable for young children. I do this show for a couple of very important reasons. The first one being that I feel we need to normalize the behaviors and the craziness that occur during a separation and divorce. It's helpful for both the people going through a divorce and those around them to understand what to expect and how to handle it. Going through a divorce is like nothing else that you will ever experience in life. Number two, I want to prompt you to start thinking about things in a different manner so you don't have to make the same mistakes I did. I also hope to fill some of the knowledge gaps you may have and provide you with some ideas or solutions for what is troubling you at the moment. And most importantly, I would love for you to walk away from each episode just a little bit stronger, feeling a bit more validated and a little more settled because you have a bit of knowledge in your toolkit. So I recommend after listening to each episode, take a few minutes and think about what you've heard. What resonated with you? Do some things seem a bit more clear to you now? Or do you need to do a bit more digging? The whole purpose of my show is to get you to see things perhaps in a different light or for you to slow down or step back a little bit and make sure that you're clear about what you're doing, but more importantly, why you're doing it as opposed to reacting. Okay, with that in mind, let's get on with the show. Today's episode is called Things I Wish I Knew Before I Dated, Married, and Had Children. I'm certain that my life would have been vastly different had I had known back then what I know now. But as we all know, hindsight is twenty twenty. But I thought instead of keeping all of this information to myself, the best thing to do is take what I've learned and share it with as many people as possible, including my children and adults alike. And hopefully they'll share that with their children as well to hopefully prevent some of the heartache that can come along with not being fully aware of some of the pitfalls that one can face when they're dating, marrying, and having children with someone that they don't really know or they don't know how to look for the signs of when it's time to turn and run. So what I'm hoping is that hearing my story will prompt you to take a bit of a retrospective look at your relationship history and not in any way, shape, or form to assign blame, not to feel regret, but rather to learn from your own experience about what abuse can look like, what were the signs that you missed, or in fact, did you see them and you just downplayed their role? Did you get that funny feeling in your stomach and you just dismissed it, downplayed it? And to look at how you typically react to these behaviors. And why it's important is because oftentimes these things are noticeable and we do notice them, but because of various aspects of our lives, the way we were raised, the way we were treated as children, tend to often make us downplay some of this. Now, by no means am I ever, ever saying that anything that you've experienced abuse-wise is ever your fault. There is never any excuse for an individual to abuse another person. So I just want to say that and get that out right now. Knowing the signs is one thing, 
And we talked a lot about that in previous episodes. And I talk about that as often as I can, because I don't feel there's enough information out there. But if you don't have a handle on how you tend to react to certain behaviors, you will be more apt to find yourself in the same situation in the future. You know, I firmly believe that one of the main reasons why second, third marriages don't fare very well is because we don't learn a whole lot from our first marriage. Sometimes we tend to externalize, which is fair enough, but we don't look at some of our own reactions and some of the reasons why we behave that we do. And then, of course, we repeat the same behavior in the next relationship or we become attracted to the same individual and we're always wondering why are we why are we so attracted to or why do we attract the same type of individual that's not good for you and that's why it's important not to say again not to say it's your fault but we need to understand why you are attracted to that and that has a lot to do with understanding how you behave and understanding where these behaviors come from now one thing I won't be able to do is to give you a list of tips and tricks on how to handle manipulative behavior while you're still in the relationship That's because I never want to encourage anyone to stay in a situation where they're being abused. From my perspective, the only real solution when one is being abused is to get out as safely as they can, as quickly as you can. But knowing that that is one of the most dangerous things an individual can do. The most dangerous time in a person's life, an abused victim's life, is when they threaten to leave or when they in fact do leave. That being said, I want to be cautious and not coach people to find ways to just grin and bear it and stay in a a dangerous situation. I think it's key for everyone to realize that there's no point wasting another second trying to change someone who doesn't want to change, or for that matter, doesn't see a need to change, because in fact, they say you as the problem. When in actual fact, you are not the problem. What I see time and time again, and when I'm working with clients going through a divorce or separation, I tell people that the issue is not the issue. I know you feel like you're the issue because that person's making you feel like you're the issue. You're the one inciting conflict. I used to get that comment all the time, but the issue isn't the issue. And how I know that or how you'll know that is there will be times where you do capitulate or you do want to resolve the conflict. So you do do what the demand, what they're demanding. But lo and behold, there's yet either another issue or that does not solve the problem. Why? Because they move the goalposts. It's never good enough. The problem is they think that you're the problem and they think that if certain things happen, then everything will be all right again. But that's not the case because there's a deep-rooted problem, probably from way back in their childhood, that has nothing to do with you, that you can't do anything about even if you tried. Now, on to the story of my trip down coercive control lane. And I'll take you through that and I'll take you through some of what I have learned and what I wish I had known. And some of it may resonate with you, some of it may not. But I want it to be an eye-opener for you because I know if I'd heard someone's story when I was in the midst of it, I know I would be more apt to say, wait a second, this isn't the way people are supposed to live. This isn't normal. I know something wasn't right, but I didn't know it was that bad because up until just a few years ago, honestly, I had no idea that I was experiencing abuse, that what I had experienced was abuse. I would never have categorized it as that because just like everyone else, I thought abuse meant physical. And yes, I had been on uh, one occasion. But other than that, I thought, no, I was just in a very unhappy marriage. And that was true, but it was so much more than that. So before separation, my spouse, the time was very easygoing, 
never made demands, always agreeable, whatever you want to do. And was very, seemed very sweet, very thoughtful, very attentive, very love bombing. And at the time I didn't know that. And it's so easy to fall for that, especially when you're young. And if you're not well-versed in relationships, you think, wow, this person really has fallen for me. And it makes you feel on top of the world. And they make you feel like you're the only person in the room. And I can understand why that feels good. I experienced it. However, that is typically a red flag because it is not normal to jump in so heavily and be so intense so quickly. The problem was that after separation, he became this rage-filled, unstable, violent, deceptive individual, someone who I had never thought I knew. I thought, this is crazy. Who is this person? What has happened? And I made the mistake of thinking, oh, well, he's just upset at the time and this will change, not realizing that in fact, this moment, or he had been building up to this moment for a very, very long time. I just didn't see all of the insidious behavior and some overt behavior as a part of this whole strategy. You know, I couldn't understand how a person could change so drastically. It was almost like a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde or like The Incredible Hulk, if any of you have seen those that movie or that uh, TV series many years ago. But as I said, the fact is he hadn't changed. The man I thought I knew had truly never existed. It turned out to be all an act. And how I know that is the individual who he became after the separation, he is still that way today. He has sustained that. The man I was seeing after separation was, in my mind, a truer depiction of who he really was. So let me give you a little sense of things that I missed because I misconstrued them as being somewhat positive. And uh, I'm sure many of you can relate to some of these things. Because he really honestly could have written a book on how to woo a girl under 60 seconds. You know, like I said, he was charming, kind, funny, willing to give anybody the shirt off his back. All the things I thought I was looking for. We seem to have a lot in common. Both of our parents were in the same profession. He had a younger sibling with the big age difference, just like I did. But Looking back now, I realized the first sign of trouble was on our very first date. He came to pick me up, and before he even said hello, he took one look at me and said, you're not wearing that, are you? And to be honest, I was dumbfounded. And very rarely have I ever been at a loss for words, but at that moment I was. I felt like a slap in the face because no one had ever said that to me before. And I was shocked because it was also somewhat uncharacteristic of him, the little bit that I had known about him because we had spent some time together in a group and that kind of thing. And that didn't seem like something that he would say. And then of course, instead of thinking, what a jerk, I thought, oh, geez, maybe I shouldn't. I felt ashamed and thought, yes, I had better go change. Even though I was wearing what I thought was a great outfit and was wearing one of my favorite tops at the time. And you know, it's interesting because my mother caught that exchange and said something to me and I just kind of sloughed it off. But she knew from an early, early, early stage that that was a problem. He was also very smart. Not book smart per se. I would say more like street smart, perhaps, and somewhat cunning, maybe conniving, but more cunning. He knew the smartest thing to do was to sit back and let me do all the talking so he could find out everything about me that he would need to know in order to manipulate me or use against me at some point in time. I naively thought, oh, I had found a man who was generally interested in getting to know me. And look at, he's letting me talk on and on and on. He's asking me questions. 
We would talk for hours about my likes and dislikes, interests, hobbies, my childhood, my family, my dreams. Amazingly, he had all of the same interests and dreams. What were the odds? I thought, wow, we're kindred spirits. Don't we all think that, right? Oh, we're soulmates. Problem was, he was an extremely good mimic. And I didn't know that at the time. Later on in our relationship, I realized that because he was, became very good at doing impressions of other people, uh, like bang on impressions. It was uncanny. What I didn't realize until many, many years later is that almost everything he did was an impression. A lot of how he behaved prior to separation was what he saw others doing and imitated or what he thought a husband should be like or a father should be like. I always thought it was odd because he would act a certain way and then it would, it's like that behavior would fall off a cliff and it would go nowhere and then he'd have to reinstate it. I guess it's because if you're not being genuine and you're having to play a part, the upkeep of it is very difficult to do 24-7. It's interesting because when I look back, there were so many instances where he would gladly do an impression for anyone. And it was always strange because... He was never somebody who liked to draw a lot of attention to himself. In fact, he always liked to be a bit of a wallflower and kind of hang back. But the minute anyone wanted him to do an impression, he was right there in the middle of the room doing this. And I always found that very odd. But he was quite proud of that fact too. And he would do it oftentimes as as we got older, unprompted. And he would just do it on a, and he would hold that part for quite some time. And he would do it when we were out in public. And I know now that why he was so adept at doing that is because even as a kid, he was always praised for being very quiet, you know, seen and not heard. And I think what he's done is he had learned from a very early age to sit back and skillfully watch how others behaved and then watch how people reacted to that behavior. So then he started collecting a catalog in his mind as to how to act and how to behave in certain situations and to be able to predict people's reactions to that behavior. Sometimes I would get a nagging feeling that something wasn't quite right. Like he would use the wrong terminology or just talk about things superficially and wouldn't expand until I pressed and he would just change the subject. And, you know, it wasn't, I would say, a big red flag, but I always thought it's just odd. And then I would move on. But then came the pity party. And this tends to be, should be a red flag. Now, I'm one of the biggest proponents of men feeling comfortable and safe enough to express their emotions in any way, shape, or form that they wish. I don't feel there are enough safe places for them to do that. I don't feel we do a good enough job of making men and boys feel safe, or any gender for that matter, to feel safe. Because even women, are, however you identify, there's always someone in the corner judging how you should or shouldn't behave or how you should or shouldn't express it. You're either making a fuss or you're too dramatic or it's not that bad, or what, or you're not expressive enough. However, when a person early, early, early on in a relationship paints themselves as a big victim, that might be something you might want to look at as a red flag. He told me very early on in a relationship, I mean, probably within weeks, that his mother had died when he was a few months old. His father moved to a remote town, thousands of miles away from where the extended family lived remarried, and then told me some other stuff that I won't repeat here because I just feel that that's just, I want to keep that confidential. And I never shared that with any of the professionals. And that's something that I will never share with them or the children or anything like that. I was shocked, but more importantly, 
what he wanted to happen happened. I instantly felt sorry for him and I instantly wanted to kind of, you know, cocoon him and protect him from any further harm. He got me hook, line and sinker. Now, I know a lot of what he told me was true, but regardless, when someone dumps that on you very early on, there's typically only one reason for doing that. It's not so that you can get connected. No, it's so that you can reel that person in because he was so smart. He determined from a very, probably from the first moment he met me that I was a very empathetic person and very caring. And that's hearing something like that, I would jump in and I would, I would fight for that person and protect that person. That's who I've been since I was little. And so he knew that. And that was the first point where he started to exploit that and continue to until just recently when I went no contact. The intent of that ploy was twofold. One, for me to engage my strong sense of empathy, feel sorry for him. And two, for me to admire how remarkable his recovery had been from all those traumas. So not only did I feel empathy towards him, but admiration. Just brilliant, brilliant manipulation. He knew that as soon as you gain someone's pity, they likely will be putty in your hands. I didn't realize that until just a few years ago. After that came the disclaimer that if he ever seems possessive of me or questions my behavior, it's simply because his last girlfriend had been unfaithful to him. Again, another twofold intent, eliciting more pity because my gosh, this just never ends for this poor guy. It's one thing after another. So much trauma. And two, preempting his future abusive behavior with a good excuse. Telling me that, you know, if I seem a little possessive, if I seem a little harsh, it's simply because I've been traumatized in the past. So God forbid I react harshly in the future. I can't possibly re-traumatize him. Brilliant. He's setting the stage as he goes along, but had no clue back then. So later on, after we separated, he would say things to me like, look what you made me do, or I'm doing this for our family to fix everything that you broke, making me feel responsible for the destruction of our family. Like his behavior had nothing to do with any of our problems in our marriage or our breakup. And he set that stage early on in our relationship many, many years ago that essentially he could do no wrong. And if he did, well, it's understandable because he's been so traumatized. When I look back on our relationship, I truly can't think of a time when he was generally accountable for his actions. He either bought forgiveness, he was famous for buying gifts, which I never wanted, and it just really upset me more, or he cried to elicit empathy, would beat himself up verbally, and then eventually turn the tables. So now I was comforting and reassuring him instead of me being upset as to what happened. This cycle happened over and over again. So one would think at some point, I would have realized it and woken up. Yet studies show that if a person tells you something more than three times, it has a greater effect than if three people tell you the same thing. Plus, they say if you want to create a habit or make a behavior stick, do it for 21 days and you're good. Well, he blew those numbers out of the water. What he told me and how he treated me stuck and stuck big time. Now, I know some of you may be thinking that there's no way you would fall for that. I used to think the same thing. I thought I was extremely bright, which I am, but I thought I was very street smart. I'm not sure why I thought that simply because I had a very, not sheltered lifestyle or upbringing, but I was very protected and there's a lot I didn't know. I guess that expression that you hear, you don't know what you don't know is very, very true. It wasn't my situation. If all of that were true, that you wouldn't fall for that and I shouldn't have fallen for that, I don't think social media would be as popular as it is. Would it really matter how many likes or followers a person has? Would there be TikTok trends that we have to prevent our kids from participating in because they're dangerous? 
you know, it's very easy to, or fake news, it's very easy to fall victim to certain things for various reasons. You know, if our experience with COVID the last few years has taught us anything, it's that people find it very difficult to determine what's true and what isn't, even in the face of hard, fast science. You can't predict who's going to believe something who's not. My ex was never one to be over-the-top excited about anything. And that always used to bug me because I tend to be, as I'm sure many of you can tell, somewhat passionate. And I'm passionate about lots of things. And I'm very, very rarely seen with flat affect. It's nearly impossible for me. It's not like I have two opposites, but there's, there's hardly any gray area for me. But I would classify him as very gray. Despite that, he always gave the impression that he supported everything I was interested in. But that's all that it was. It was just an impression. He had this knack for showing support and sharing my excitement in things when I first introduced them, but as soon as I achieved them, he would say or do something to knock the wind out of my sails or, you know, kick the feet out from under me. And it just would always leave me feeling deflated. One of the biggest examples was when I think I was maybe 19, 20, one of my first cars was given to me by my grandfather. Older car, but it was in pristine condition. I was so proud of it. I armor-alled it, the whole thing, and I just was so excited. And I wanted to show my boyfriend at the time and met him near his place. And I told him all about it, and I had talked it up big time. And as an aside, keep in mind, he, he didn't have a vehicle at the time. He took the bus. I pull up, I get out of the car, and I'm just beaming. And I'm so excited, and I'm just vibrating with excitement. And the first thing he says to me is, you armor-alled this? Well, I was crushed. Absolutely crushed. I thought, unbelievable. Like it just in one fell swoop with three or four words, absolutely took the wind out of me. Of course, I came back with a retort that, that means a lot coming from a guy who takes the bus. But I tell you that I, I never, it took me a long time to get over that. And that's something that he did on a regular basis. And back then I thought, oh, he's just, you know, socially inept and didn't know any better. And now when I look back, I think, oh no, the, they knew exactly what he was doing. It was me who didn't know any better. Later on, after I finished my MBA, I started an executive coaching business and it took off like gangbusters. With the idea came about, he was very supportive. But when I started to get very successful, I heard things like, mm, must be nice to start your own business and work whenever you want while I'm trying to hold down two jobs, which again, floored me because up until then, we had talked about everything. Everything was fine. We were on the same page. And he always vowed he wouldn't do or say some of the things that his father would say. And that is similar to what his father would always say. If he came home with a 90%, it was always, well, where's that missing 10%? Or must be nice to be making good money. It was never a good for you, or I'm proud of you, or even just a, hmm, that's nice. Essentially, my ex wanted me to do well, but just not better than him. And that has continued even after separation. I feel like that was even the case when he looks at her children. On the one hand, he wanted them to do well. He was their father, but just don't show me up. And that seems to be, and that, that seems to be the way he deals with everybody around him. He doesn't necessarily wish ill on people and wants them to do well, but just he wants to always be top of the heap. When I was doing my business degree in Vancouver, we didn't know anyone there except for my classmates. My classmates became our pseudo family or my pseudo family. We would study together, golf together, and we even would have orphans Thanksgivings because only one of our classmates was local. The rest of us were from all over Canada. And especially for Thanksgiving, we wouldn't go back home. Christmas probably, and most, most often we did, but Thanksgiving never. 
I was one of the very few that actually had a significant other, but he was always welcome to join and everyone was happy to have him. And he was eager to go. But then once we would get there, he would act sullen and quiet or annoyed and aloof. That would always set me off. Instead of socializing with others, I would be wondering what's going on or try to tap dance and make things better. He would say he felt uncomfortable because he didn't know anyone and felt better being near me. So then, of course, making I felt guilty because I knew everyone so well. We were in class together all the time. I felt compelled to take care of him. I felt that was my responsibility. Eventually, he stopped going. Then he expected me to stop going, which I didn't think was fair. This was my world at the time, and I did not want to isolate myself. I did not want to just go to class and go back home. He never came right out and said it, but would often play the guilt game, and I soon realized it just wasn't worth the hassle anymore. That's when the isolation began. One of the things that he tried to do, and that was probably the first inkling I had, actually probably before that a little bit too, but trying to drive a wedge between myself and my family and friends. One Christmas, my family came out to spend Christmas with us. And as we're all sitting around opening presents, he blurted out, actually, my mom had asked, well, what do you guys think is going to happen next Christmas? Uh, you know, looking forward to having you guys come home, something to that nature. And my ex blurted out, well, no, we're going away. And he and I had talked about that, just generally speaking, but we wouldn't have been able to afford it. I was a student still, and it was just dreaming. That's all it was. And I thought, oh my God, I can't believe you said that because my family was crushed. Christmas was very important, and especially since I was away in another city, hardly ever saw them. That was, And that also was not the way to tell them. It was very, very gruff, and I was just horrified. And it created a big rift with everybody. It made it for the rest of Christmas to be very uncomfortable. And I think the only one that was happy with that was him. He didn't seem to be that disturbed by it, but the rest of us were. Whenever we got together with friends, whether it was with my school friends or other friends, it eventually became such a hassle. And I felt so uncomfortable that oftentimes I would want to cancel or say that we can't go. It was so much pressure for me because I would feel I'd have to compensate for him, plus be charming as well. And it just became so difficult and so tiring and just it wasn't fun. Then things morphed into hearing things like, you know, I don't know if really it's best for you to hang out with them. I don't really think they want the best for you. And that would be something he'd say either about family or friends. I don't think they have their best interests at heart. I'm pretty sure they want to control you or, or they don't know you like I do. He was so masterful when he would say things like that. He wouldn't just say them out of the blue or when I was happy. It was always when either a family member or friend, we were in disagreement or something of that nature. So then he sided with me, but he went too far, in my opinion, now where he was saying, you know, I think they're just trying to control you. They never let you have your way or anything like that. So of course, trying to drive a wedge. Others did see some of these red flags, some of my friends, my family members, and they warned me, but I didn't listen. And all it did was give my ex more opportunities to play the victim. Oh, poor me. Nobody likes me. And see, they don't have your best interest at heart. They don't want you to be happy. After I graduated from business school, I started taking better care of myself and started taking more pride in my appearance because I felt I needed to look more professional and I could no longer pull off the poor graduate student look because I was a working professional. Unfortunately, that was misconstrued by my ex. He would start insinuating that I was perhaps dolling myself up for someone at work or one of my clients, which honestly couldn't have been farther from the truth. 
But you know, when you're accused of something like that, you spend so much time, as, as ludicrous as it sounds, you spend so much time trying to defend yourself and disproving something that didn't happen. And it's very, very difficult. And I think sometimes the more you do that, the more conflict it creates. Not realizing at the time, I don't think he thought that. It was just a way of diminishing me and making me feel guilty, making me feel shame and diverting my attention away from pride. Didn't want me to have a lot of pride. When we were out, he would point out if he thought a man was looking at me or would ask me what I thought of that or what I thought of that guy. And I found that so annoying, but never once did I see it as coercive nor manipulative. In some respects, I think I found it somewhat endearing because I thought, oh, he's a little jealous. But isn't that what girls are taught to believe, that that's something that is an endearing quality? And oh, look how much he loves you because he's jealous that someone else is looking at you. Garbage. Absolute garbage. I should have followed my instinct and that yucky feeling in my stomach that it just made me feel creepy. I didn't like it being pointed out, even if somebody was looking at me. It just made me, the whole thing made me feel uncomfortable. And he knew that. I told him that, but he continued to do that. So whose best interest was at heart there? Certainly not mine. He always used to vow, and I said this earlier, that he did not want to end up like his father. Unfortunately, in my opinion, that's exactly how he turned out. He, he always said when he was a kid, he, he didn't love going home because he never knew what he was going to walk into. He didn't know what to expect from his parents, what kind of mood they'd be in, or if he would get into trouble. And we found that even as adults, that would often be the case too, because they weren't always predictable. The only thing that was predictable was the unpredictability. His parents, particularly his father, would forever be moving the goalposts. And what was good enough one day wasn't the next. This didn't change. As I said, we were adults and that happened. We had children and that happened. I'll give you an example. One time we were in a car accident, 100% not his fault. It was pouring rain. Driving, we had the right of way. A woman pulled right out in front of us and turned at an intersection. And of course, we hit her. There was no concern for our safety or even the other person's safety. The reaction his father gave was so volatile. It was scary. And there was anger and rage. And how could we be so stupid? And how could uh, he be so careless? And now his insurance is going to go up, which was false. And I tried to explain that in my being a dumb young person, I wasn't thinking that I should not get involved, but in fact, it was true. It was not going to happen. I was trying to de-escalate things, but that did not help. But his volatility became such a problem that both my ex and I agreed to never allow our children to be alone with him. That became an even bigger problem after we divorced. After one of our son's hockey games, my husband Barry and I were walking up to our car and we heard a car revving behind us. And it was one of those parking lots where there's a lot of gravel. So it was quite loud. And we turned to look and it was my ex-parents driving towards us at a high rate of speed. We froze. And luckily, my ex-father-in-law slammed on the brakes just in time. I don't know if he was trying to hit us or just trying to scare us. I don't know. But it didn't stop there. He jumped out and started berating us for being in the way. That created a whole lot of problems because now I was not only fearful of my ex, but also of my in-laws. That's the kind of volatility we're dealing with. It started to dawn on me at that point then too, that it's no wonder my ex behaved the way that he did and had that kind of volatility when that's all he knew growing up. Even though he was telling me he'd never wanted to be that kind of husband or father, having his family afraid of him and afraid of how he'll react, didn't want anyone to walk on eggshells around him. And I believed him at the time. 
but I shouldn't have because it's hard for people to be different than the only thing that they know. There truly only were a handful of times that his true volatility showed through before separation. One of those times was kids were little, they're both close in age, and they were under two, they were both still in diapers. He was taking the bottles to the bottle depot, and he came back in a fit of rage. I had no idea, he was just spitting mad. Turns out somehow a dirty diaper, it was wrapped up, was mistakenly put in the bottles. I'm not, I have no idea how that happened. I mean, I had two little ones that were in diaper. I had no idea. Maybe it got bumped in there by accident. I don't know. But he said he was so embarrassed when he pulled that out with the bottles. He could have just died. And I heard about that all flipping day. I was shocked because first of all, sorry, but I don't even know if I did it. I don't know how it happened. My apologies. But what is the big deal? And I'd never seen him react that way. That was shocking to me. Even talking about it now creates a visceral reaction for me. I can still feel a little bit of that shock that I felt a long time ago. Another red flag that I somehow glossed over, I'm not sure how I did that, but he never really had my back when it mattered the most. And this is something that I don't know if I've really realized that until my second marriage when my husband, without a doubt, 100% of the time has my back, as my parents do. And that's something that when you do have it. I guess when you when you, you don't realize something is wrong until you experience the right. He always talked a big game, always sided with me, but all it was was just talk. When it came down to act, I would look around and he was nowhere to be seen, leaving me holding the bag. Times where there were situations happening at school and I would have to deal with the other parent or deal with the teacher, sometimes the administrator. He would say things like, wow, that must be really hard for you. And I would think, did you hear that from a psychologist or something? That is exactly what I don't want to hear. We're supposed to be in this together. But it became this vicious circle where he wouldn't act, but something had to be done. So I would do it. And then, of course, he would rely on me doing it. And then I felt extremely overwhelmed because I was constantly having to be the fixer or the Ray Donovan of our family, no matter what occurred. It made me, allowed me to morph into this woman who had to do everything for everybody. And it got quite toxic and quite exhausting. I've since changed that, thank goodness. But it has become much easier to change that when you have a partner who is willing to work with you as opposed to against you or just to sit back and watch you flounder. Another aspect that bothered me probably from the very get-go, but of course, I, I don't know what I was thinking, to be honest. I don't know if I thought, oh, it'll all just write itself or I'll just stick my head in the sand. I don't want to deal with it. I'm not sure because I was so young. Money is always a big issue in relationships. Young, old, it doesn't matter. Early on, I felt I could not trust him with money or more so our philosophies about money were not the same. One of the mistakes I made was trusting him with money, particularly when we had children. Beforehand, we had different philosophies, whereas I would only charge things to my credit card that I could afford to pay at the end of the month. I did not want to go into debt. I never had to go into debt. And he was more of the mindset of buy now, pay later. Maybe, maybe not. That didn't become a problem until after we had children because I had taken the, with our first child, I had taken the year off as you're allowed to do here in Canada and had my job secured. I was planning on going back, but I, I was not prepared for how impactful it was to stay home with my child. And I did not want to go back. So we decided as a family that my husband would work and I would be stayed home. And yes, we would have to 
reconfigure things and our spending habits in order to be able to afford that because we were used to two incomes. Now we've gone down to one and we have another mouth to feed. So fair enough. We agreed. I'll be the primary caregiver. He would look after the financials because it was overwhelming for me to look after the child and to have to look after the financials. And I thought mistakenly it would be fairly easy. We buy whatever we need and then we paid at the end of the month like we always have. And if it becomes a problem and we're starting to go into the red, we cut back. Easy. Done it all my life. And he knew how important it was for me to have financial security. It's important to my family. I come from an immigrant family, as I said. And growing up, we didn't have a ton of money. We weren't broke. We weren't, I would say, poor, but we had to be very careful. And it was it was a value instilled in me to respect money and to not be willy-nilly about it and to make sure that you're financially secure. I valued being debt-free except for our mortgage. You know, I was really raised only to buy what I could afford. And he knew that extra debt would damage my sense of security, which I don't know of anybody who doesn't need a sense of security. That was very important to me. So I thought everything was fine until I was pregnant with our second child. And one day, as we're about to sit down and bathe our child, our first child, and we've already purchased a brand new home, we're building a brand new home, he tells me we are $70,000 in debt and that he's tried everything to fix it. But since he already has a job, it is now my job to fix it. I can tell you when I think back to that day, and this is no exaggeration, I don't think I slept for at least a week. I sat up every night looking online, trying to figure out different ideas, thinking of stay-at-home business ideas, looking for part-time jobs, everything I could because I thought, my God, we're already that much in debt and we have another child coming. What are we going to do? So what I did was I found a job and went back to work after our second child was born, I think it was a month after, and worked part-time, which ended up almost being full-time after that. During that time, though, we had come to an agreement that it wasn't enough for me just to be working. If I was going to be working and taking time away from the children, I needed to make sure that we were whittling down our expenses. We weren't just barely covering them. We had to stop spending as we, as we were. Because I had found out that Unbeknownst to me at the time, he was making very frivolous expenses and adding to our debt. The reason why he didn't tell me when we were only a thousand or two thousand in debt was because he thought he could fix it. He would pay one credit card with the other and it got to be a huge mess. And so as became a habit after that, he waited until it was a huge mess until he dumped it on my lap. And that's how I felt at the time. So what happened was we agreed to that. He stuck to it for a while. I'd been working. We had childcare in place. We started whittling down our expenses down as far as we could, cut out cable, cut out all of these extras, things that most people don't see as extras, but we had to. He started frivolously spending again. He would buy things that we did not need. He would come home with a bunch of items from Costco or wherever, and I would look at him and think, what are you doing? You have to stop doing this because it would create so much pressure. I don't know if he was filling some need of his what my need and the children's need for food and financial security was completely obliterated. But what he would do is he would always make sure when he came home with whatever these items were, one time it was car washing stuff, he would always bring home a gift for me to butter me up. And I would always think, you obviously don't know me. That is exactly what doesn't work. I'm not materialistically inclined that way. But he is. So he tried to detract my attention from the fact that he had just blown a bunch of money we did not have. It was always something frivolous or extravagant, always something I didn't want, but he thought would be great because it was flashy and screamed, we're rich, like watches or diamonds. And it would just make me lose it. 
I just thought this is never going to end. And it actually terrified me because I just thought we're going to go down this financial hellhole and I don't know how to get us out of it. So I flipped out because I was trying to pay our parents back. They were kind enough to cover the 70000 we owed, plus pay our fixed expenses. And there he was buying up toys like he was Drake. I couldn't handle it. Every time I reacted that way, he would act so wounded. He felt like I was dismissing his generosity. He would say things like, oh, I just thought I, I was thinking of you and you've been working so hard at reducing our expenses and being away from the children that this is my way of showing gratitude. Of course, failing to realize his generosity, I'm doing in quotes, is what got us into that mess in the first place. Shit I Learned from My Divorce is written by me, Trish Guys, and produced by Barry Guys. Audio editing and sound design is by Barry Guys. I would love to have you tell a friend or a family member about this podcast, and you can help me share the important concepts I cover by leaving a rating and review of Shit I Learned from My Divorce on Google Podcast or wherever you listen to your podcasts. To stay up to date on the latest from me or to contact me, visit my website, trishguys.com. That's T-R-I-S-H-G-U-I-S-E. You can also find me on Twitter and LinkedIn at Trish Guys and on Facebook and Instagram at Trish Guys Divorce Coach. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. This has been Shit I Learned from My Divorce with me, Trish Guys, Divorce and Pre-Mediation Coach. Until next time, be good to yourself and to your kids.